John 17, verses 1 through 5, and then verse 24. So John 17, 1 through 5, and then John 17, verse 24. John 17. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. John 17, 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Amen. Good morning, everybody. We are in a, a series on the gospel according to John, and um, today we come to John chapter 17, which is the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. It's one of my favorite passages in all of scripture, so I am excited about this today um, for several reasons, not just because it's one of my favorite, but because prayer is arguably one of the most important parts of a spiritual life. And yet it is often one of the most misunderstood parts of our life in Christ, our life as, as spiritual people. So today my task is to bring this, this lofty text about the glory of God down to where we live and I was thinking about this earlier this week. Um, you know, every, uh, my parents are out of town. They're in the Philippines right now, actually. So um, they're out of town. I'm taking my kids to school every day, and we'll do a devotional, and we'll read, and then I'll have one of them pray um, on the way to school, uh, which San Diego traffic, being what it is, affords us about 15 minutes of devotional time, right? Um, so I dropped my older kids off, and I'm driving with Gavin, and I said, you want to pray, Bubba? And he said, yeah, Dad, I'll pray. And so I said, great, let's pray. And he goes, Dear Jesus, thank you for this food. And then he just stopped because there was no food, right? And he just busted up laughing. And I thought, that is so apropos. That is exactly, first of all, we laughed it off, and then he prayed and picked it up, and he prayed this beautiful prayer. But I was just thinking about, he had this rehearsed pattern, right, of prayer in his life. And, and as I was driving back after dropping him off, I started thinking, how many areas of my prayer life do I have the same thing? Do I have these rehearsed patterns in my life that I go to God in prayer? I go to God with my lists. I go to God with my things. When this kind of thing triggers in my life, then I go to God. Anybody? Yeah, yeah okay, good. I'm in the right place. So um, today we're going to look at how Jesus prays. In fact, for the next few weeks, um, the next maybe two or three weeks. And we're going to look at one of the best examples of prayer because this is like 26 verses of Jesus opening up his prayer life with the Father. And he's not just leading him in what we call the Lord's Prayer, right, where he's basically giving them a disciple's prayer, a pattern of how to pray, but this is just him raw, real, and vulnerable praying to the Father. 
And uh, so I love, love this passage, and I love that we get to learn about prayer today from the Master himself. Okay, so let's look at this. Today, as we look at this, this passage, yeah, I just want to say, if you get this today, this will open up new worlds for you. If you get what Jesus is doing here today, if you understand it, your awareness of God's love, your awareness of God's presence in your daily reality will go off the charts. Okay, so I want to I wanna encourage you to listen in, to try, to try to focus, and this is lofty ideas today that we're going to try to bring down, so try to hang with me. And as we start today and look at what Jesus prays, we're going to say three things, why we pray, what we should pray for, and how to pray for it. So why we pray, what we should pray for, and how to pray for it. Verse 1, why we pray, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. So Jesus starts off by talking about his time. The time has come. And we've discovered throughout the Gospel of John that whenever Jesus is talking about his time or his hour, what's he talking about? His death, a cross, yeah. And it's interesting, so what's, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, now's the time for me to glorify you by dying. And so I, I'd like to submit that this reveals something about why Jesus prays in contrast to why you and I normally pray. Why do we pray? We have a tendency to pray when things are in doubt, right? Like, for instance, if I told you tomorrow X is going to happen, no matter what you do, it's not going to change it. God has willed it. It is happening. It's certain. So pray. You would say, why pray? I can't change anything. Nothing's going to change this. So why would, I, why would I pray? Yet Jesus comes to an event he's known for a long time is happening, regardless of what he does. He's, he's known it's going to happen, so he starts praying. In other words, the thing that decreases our desire to pray increases Christ's desire to pray. What's up with that? Let me put it like this. Um, this past holiday, we were in New York City, and uh, I, long story short, I went to use my uh, credit card in one of those uh, parking meters, and it didn't go through for like $1.25. And I was like, what in the world? So I check online, and long story short, our car had been broken into while we're in New York, a checkbook had been stolen, and our account had been wiped out. So that's, that's a horrible place to be, um, especially since our bank is based here in California, so I couldn't really do anything. So got to wait till we get back a week or so later. I'm going into the bank over and over, filling out paperwork and affidavits, and they're like, you've got to have this one notarized. And, oh, man, now I've got to pay for 15 signatures. It's going to cost me more money than I lost in my bank account just to get these things notarized. But they've got a guy at the bank that does notary. So they set an appointment, and I'm like... I'm sitting there, and I, I, I'm waiting at this appointment. I'm looking at my clock, and it's 30 minutes late. No call, no show. What's going on with the bank guy, the notary? I'm getting frustrated. I should have just notarized it myself, paid the money, and just sent him in. should have just mailed the paperwork in. And um, he gives me a call. I get the call from a random number. And uh, he's like, I'm so sorry I'm running late. My wife and I are at the hospital. It's our first pregnancy, and there's some complications. And all of a sudden, I feel like the biggest jerk in the world, right? I'm so mad at this guy. And now, all of a sudden, I discover that, that there's, there's these very real personal things going on. So we reschedule. Long story short, I'm hanging out with him across his desk there in the bank. 
and he's sharing with me the complications, what he's feeling, what's going on with his wife, and I get to share all this stuff with him because I've been there three times, right? Three kids. So all of a sudden, we're laughing. He's, he weeps. I get to pray for him in the middle of the bank, and I'm thinking to myself in this moment, like, if I had just mailed the papers in, I would have missed all of this. But that's the thing. Like, so many of us, our transaction gets in the way of our relationship, right? And that's, that's one of the things that we see with Jesus here. The contrast between ours and Jesus' reason for praying is our model of prayer is to mail in the paperwork. We pray when we want things. We pray when things are in doubt. We pray when there's things we want. We pray to conform God to our agenda. But Jesus, it's the other way around. Jesus doesn't pray transactionally, he prays relationally. Jesus prays not to conform God to his agenda, but to conform his own heart to God's agenda. Let me put it to you a couple of um, paradoxical ways to be vivid. We pray to get God to give us things. Jesus prays to find God in things. Anything that happens, Jesus says, I want to glorify you in that. I want to know you more in that. I want to draw closer. I want to see your glory in this moment. That's the reason he's praying. See, our understanding of prayer is mailing in the paperwork, right? That's what it is. It's the list. Let me tell you what Jesus' model for prayer is. In uh, Revelation, um, the book of Revelation is also written by John, right? And so uh, same guy who wrote this gospel. When John wrote the book of Revelation, he saw this vision of Jesus in Revelation 3.20. And uh, he writes down this, this famous verse. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now, traditionally, over the years, when somebody has asked, how do I become a Christian? This is the verse people tend to give them, right? Maybe in your own story, even, somebody told you, this is, this is how you become a Christian. And that's okay. Like today, if you're not a believer you know, if you haven't received Christ, you can pray that prayer. God will come into your life. He will fill you with the Spirit. You can be baptized, right? But in inviting him in, it, it, it may be a good metaphor to think about coming to faith. But that's not what this scripture is about. Because Revelation 3.20 is a statement by Jesus Christ to a church. It's a statement by Jesus to Christians who've already in, invited him in, so to speak. Are we tracking? So Jesus says to Christians, look, I'm standing at the door, I'm knocking. I want to come in and eat with you and you with me. What's he talking about? Yeah, if he's talking to Christians, he can't be saying, I want to come into your life objectively, I want to regenerate your heart, because you're already a Christian, right? That's already happened. So what's Jesus concerned about? Why is he knocking and standing and calling out? Like, he's got to be concerned about something to be knocking on the door and standing there and calling out saying, there's something I want, and then he describes it. He says, I want to eat with you. What's it mean to eat with someone? What's it mean? Back then, today, what's it mean to eat with somebody? It means to let them into your life, doesn't it? To build intimacy, to grow, to share, to talk, to open up. Sitting at someone's table, especially in that culture, was an act of intimacy. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm standing at the door I want fellowship with you. I want you to sense my presence in this moment. I want intimacy with you. 
In other words, Jesus Christ is not saying, I want to come into your life objectively. You're already a believer. He's saying, I want to come into your life subjectively. I don't want to come into your life in some objective, esoterical, generalized, theological, lofty, philosophical means, right? Detached. No, I want to come into your life in a subjective, specific, personal, passionate, intimate, emotional, present sense. I want to draw near to you, make myself known to you, to to walk with you. And that's a huge concern for him because he's standing there and he's knocking and he's waiting and he's calling out. He says, what I want you to do so that we can have this deep personal experience is I want you to open the door. What's opening the door? That's Jesus' metaphor for prayer. It's prayer, right? Opening the door and reentering what it means to be truly human. You know, we were created, we were created by God for God's pleasure. What do we see with Adam and Eve in the, in the garden? God comes and what's he do with them? He walks with them in the cool of the day and talks with them. Part of what it means to be truly human is this vibrant, emotional, personal, intimate relationship with God. And that's what Jesus gets at here. Look at verse 3 in the passage we just read. Now this is eternal life. What is, what's eternal life look like? Before the fall of man, before sin, it, what's it going to look like in all of eternity? What's eternal life? That they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. What's life about? What's the essence of life, eternal life, life, life to the full, life in its richest, rawest form? It's to know God. To know God. You can know all about someone and not really know them, right? Y'all know Kobe Bryant? No, nobody knows him here, right? You know about him. You can quote his stats, right, on, in basketball, but you, you don't know him. This is eternal life that they may know you. I want to highlight that word. And the word know is the uh, Greek word genosko, which means to intimately know through personal experience. Um, to give you an idea... That's, that's the same word that's used when the angel is talking to Mary with that Christmas proclamation. Mary, the mother of Jesus, who at this point is a virgin, and he says to her, you're going to bear a son, he will be the Messiah. And she says, how can this be, for I've never known a man? It's that same word. It's, it's like the highest level of intimacy people can have. To know God is to experience deep, personal, intimate relationship with him. The ancient Christians had a, had a phrase in Latin for this reality. It was, the, it was this Latin word, uh, phrase, quorum deo. Has anybody heard that before, quorum deo? Which means all of life before the face of God. All of life in God's presence. And the idea is that every moment of your life is an intimate, personal relationship with God, whether you know it or not. Whether you're aware of his presence or not, and God is trying to break into every moment, God intimately knows me. Nothing is hidden. He sees everything, but he also wants me to know him. He wants me to see that nothing is hidden. He wants me to basically discover him in everything. Think about that. God invites you and I to uncover his hidden glory in every aspect of life. R.C. Sproul says it this way, the late... R.C. Sprawl, who passed away a couple of weeks ago, says, Coram Deo means we do not segment our lives 
giving some time to God, some to our business or schooling, while keeping other parts to ourselves. The idea is that all of our lives in the presence of God, to live all our lives in the presence of God for the glory of God, that is what the Christian life is all about. What he's saying is that God is present in every place and every moment of your life. And true life is not just mental assent of that fact. Like, yeah, we, we all know God is omnipotent. We all know he's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. Great. Tell us something we don't know, Pastor. Okay, but are you engaging with him in every moment that he's present in? How often are you present with him? True life, prayer is opening up every moment to him. It's asking God to reveal himself in those moments. It's living with an ever-increasing intimacy with him, opening the door. That's why when Jesus can see something as awful, as immutable as his own impending death, he starts to pray. Because for Jesus, the purpose of prayer is opening your heart and soul to God and experiencing intimacy with him. That's the purpose. You're in my purpose often is just mailing the paperwork to get stuff. Right? That's why I told you this story. What if your bank rep called you and said, hey, look, I got no money for you, but I would love to go out to lunch with you. You're buying, right? Be like, what? No, I don't have time for that. That's how we pray often. And Jesus is saying the purpose of prayer is opening to God. Let me, let me apply this before we move on. This is the reason Jesus Christ is not like us, right? This is the reason he's not like us, because we pray when we're in trouble. We pray when we need things. We pray when we feel the sting of sin, the guilt, the shame, the fear. And then when that stuff hits, then we pray like crazy, right? When, when life hits, when it hits the fan, we fall down to our knees and we say, God, where are you? He's like, I'm right here. I've been here, you know? Um, how many of you guys have had those moments where you pray when, when life hits you and then you're like, you're like, man, why don't I ever talk to him in just the regular every day? Yet Jesus Christ, who was always in control, who knew what was around every corner, Jesus Christ, who never felt guilt or shame or fear. He's praying all the time. He's going up to the mountain and praying all night long. Why? Because for Jesus, the purpose of prayer is opening to God. In a nutshell, we see prayer as medicine. Jesus sees prayer as food. We see prayer as a vitamin supplement to our strength. Jesus sees it as a whole new diet, a whole new way of living. There, there must be riches in prayer that we don't know anything about. We only pray when we feel like we've blown it. Jesus never blows it, but he's praying all the time. So the first purpose of prayer is opening to God. How do we have prayer that opens to God rather than mail it in prayer? How do we make that change? That's our next point, point number two. And this point's going to be more recognizable over the coming weeks because uh, as we read the whole chapter, because we're just going to verse 5 today, in verse 6, we see Jesus does have a list. Jesus does pray for stuff from God. Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays for his 12 apostles. He prays for those who will come to believe, right? Jesus Christ prays for protection and unity and truth and holiness. There's, there's lots of things, but that's not what he prays for first, right? What does Jesus pray for first? Jesus prays for glory. Now, I, I want to say this. On one hand, we got to be careful um, with this, because there's a sense in which we can't really pray what Jesus did. Um, because you shouldn't pray for what Jesus did. Because you know what he's actually praying for? He's saying, Father, make me the Savior 
of the world. Look, don't pray that prayer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or if you do, don't pray it out loud. Um, <laughs> what he says is, he says, I'm ready to glorify you through my hour. He's saying, I'm ready to die, and I'm seeking your glory in this. Look, don't apply for this job, right? Don't apply to be anybody's savior, let alone savior of the world. There's people who live their whole life that way. That's not what we're called to. So in a specific sense, we can't pray that prayer exactly as Jesus did, but in a general sense, it's exactly what we're supposed to pray. In fact, all of the great prayers of Scripture follow this type of pattern, this format. None of the great prayers start by asking for change in circumstances. They don't start by asking for ability or power or strength. You'll see over and over again, the great prayers of Scripture ask for a sight of His glory. For example, just really quickly, two great prayers in Ephesians in the New Testament, chapter 1, chapter 3. Paul is praying for the Ephesian church. And when you read them, one of the things you're struck by is he's not praying for any of the stuff we pray for. Protection, change in circumstances, power growth. What's he praying for? Look at chapter 1. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to know the riches of the glory that's yours. Look at chapter 3. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The same thing if you go back to the Old Testament. Like one example, famous prayer of Moses. He goes out to Mount Sinai. And you got to understand, if you're Moses, you're leading an entire nation that's homeless through the desert. You've got needs, right? You need prayer, you need water, you need protection, you need unity because these guys are about to tear each other apart. You got a laundry list of stuff to pray for. But what does Moses pray for? He says in verse 18, show me your glory. Jesus, Paul, Moses, they're all the same. All the great prayers, Tim Keller says in his book of prayer, all of the great prayers of scripture spend primary time praying for a realization of God's glory. That's the main thing they prayed for because that's how you open up to God as opposed to just mailing it in. And right now you say, okay, how is that? How in the world, how do we do that? That's my job today. I gotta try to bring that lofty idea down to where the rubber meets the road. That's a challenge. So um, one verse toward trying to help me with this is uh, one of my favorite verses, but it's a confusing verse. If you read four different translations, you'll end up with... uh, four different wordings of this verse. And the reason why is it's got a weird word in it. Um, it's 2 Corinthians 3. I love this verse. And my favorite translation says it this way, 3.18. We who gaze on the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. So the first reason why you need different translations is that, that word, gaze, right? What, is, what does that mean? Other translations say we who behold or we who reflect on, or we who contemplate. And the reason that word is hard to translate is it's a very unusual word. It basically means to look deeply into a mirror. How many of you guys, like, how do we look into a mirror? You know, if you looked at your neighbor right now like you look into a mirror, it would make them very uncomfortable. <laughs> They'd probably want to hit you. Let's try it. I'm just <laughs> Don't do it. Um, we have a joke in my house that if you want to find Ivan... Um, look for a mirror. <laughs> and my teenage son has a public this. We said that yesterday. <laughs> Why? Why? Because, because we love you, Ivan. Because here's the deal. When you're looking in a mirror, you know, when I see Ivan checking himself out in the mirror, right, he's got the hair just right, and 
He's looking at every detail, right? Pouring over, P-O-R-E. You know, you know how we get that word from the word pour, like pores in your skin. You're looking at the pores, every detail, every hair. Is there dandruff? You know what I mean? Straighten up the tie. That's how we look into a mirror. We're looking at every detail. And Paul says, when you look at Christ in his glory, you're, you're supposed to look at it like that. Like you're looking into a mirror to gaze into his glory, to open up your life and see his glory in it. To open up the scriptures and see his glory in it. That's the essence of how you grow. It's the essence of how you become a Christian. It's the essence of how you become changed. Is by looking into Christ's glory, into God's glory in the face of Christ. And he doesn't say, look, if you want to grow in humility, you need to watch out for prideful thoughts and try really, really hard. You can, but that's not what he says. He doesn't say, if you want to grow in courage, watch out for cowardly thoughts. Or if you want to grow in self-control, man, get your stuff together. Come on. That's not what he says, right? That's fine. You can do that. But that's religion. And what we're aiming for is Christianity, right? The gospel. What he says here, Paul says, this is it. I want you to gaze into his glory. What's that mean? It means to go beyond just the facts. The facts about God. Knowing that God is loving. Knowing that God is holy. Knowing that God is, is wise. To knowing God himself. It means to be fascinated with him. To be gripped by him. It means to experience God's raw reality in your everyday life. It means to pour over his beauties and his excellency. Better yet, that word that word glory and its original entomology, its original, original Hebrew is this word kabod. Anybody know what that means? There's two basic translations for it. It's raw reality and weightiness. The weightiness of God, the raw reality of God. So I'm going to try to tackle those two really quickly to bring this down to earth a bit. God's glory is the raw reality, the essence of who he is. And that raw reality is all around us. And part of our life is discovering God's glory in the everyday. All of life is lived before the face of this all-present, all-loving God. His glory is all around you, but are you aware of it? Can you see it? Earlier this week, I was trying to do some work, and Gavin came out into the living room and said, Dad, hold me. <laughs> I'm, I'm working right now. Please. So, I pulled him up on my lap and I held him. God put the computer down, holding my five-year-old. And, and I looked down at him, and he's just beaming, just looking up at me, beaming, daddy's arms. And in that moment, my heart just melted. Everything else started fading away, all the stuff that had my attention. It's like, not only was I feeling all this amazing love for him, but all of a sudden, I could feel the father's love for me. The Father's face just beaming down at me, loving me. And that little moment with my kid that's just mundane, run in the mill, one of those things that just happens, became this window into the glory of God, his character, his love for me. You climb up into a mountain and you stand up on the precipice and you overlook creation sprawled out in front of you and the lights cutting through the clouds and there's all the colors and it's beautiful. It's easy to see God's glory. His splendor. But when you're sitting in traffic and that guy just cuts you off, 
Is God's glory in that moment? Can you find it there? How about when you lost your job or you lost a loved one or that person just broke your heart? How does God's glory show up in those moments? Do you choose to just imagine that God is somehow distant, that he's left you, or do you open up to his divine presence and discover his nearness, his glory that is drenching your life? Henry Nouwen says it this way, our glory is hidden in our pain if we allow God to bring the gift of himself into our experience of it. He's saying God's glory is all around us and part of our life, part of this, this calling to be a follower of Christ is to discover even in our most painful moments the broken beauty of our hearts and of our world. Broken because of sin, but beautiful because of our creator and redeemer who's at work bringing all things to himself. Part of engaging in this relationship with God is opening up to him in your pain and in your prosperity, in your blessing and your brokenness, in every moment of your life. God's kingdom is breaking in. Are you aware of it? God's glory is knocking on the door. Are you aware of his presence? That word kabod means raw reality. It also means weightiness. I'll try to bring this down as far far as I can. If you believe God is wise and loving, but you're worried right now about something, and the wisdom and the love of God is not really having an impact on you, that's a glory thing, okay? If you're worried, even though you believe in his love and wisdom, the real problem is his love and wisdom haven't hit you. You don't feel the weight of it. You're not under the power of it. You don't see the glory of it. See what I'm saying? Okay. You guys are with me? It's quiet in here. It's quiet today. <laughs> it's weighty. <laughs> glory surrounds this. That's what it means to see the glory. It means you're affected by it. It means that you've experienced it. It means you've, it's become your greatest reality. And you say, well, that's very mysterious. Well, not really, because you're always under the weight of something. Okay? You're always under the glory of something. Let me give you an example. If you know me, you know I'm kind of a film buff. I love classic movies, classic cinema. And I discovered an actress from way back in the 30s that I couldn't believe I'd never heard of. Her name, name is uh, Louise Rainier. Anybody ever heard of her? She was a rising star. She was uh, signed by MGM, and she is the first, first actress to win two Academy Awards two years in a row for Best Actress. Amazing, right? Like, you would think you would have heard of her. And, and, you know, back in those days, you would be signed by a studio, so you could only work with that studio. She would, you know, she couldn't go around and just pick whatever parts she wanted. She lived in a mansion on the MGM compound with Greta Garbo and uh, somebody else. Joan Crawford. Yeah, Joan Crawford. And so the studio comes to her today, uh, one day, and they say, uh, look, we have figured out the kind of part we want for you, and here's the next X amount of films that you're going to be doing this, this style part in. And she says, no, I don't want that. I want creative license. I want to grow as an actress. I want to try different things. And they said, no, 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 no. So finally they go to part ways. And she has this final meeting with uh, Louis B. Mayer, the head of MGM. And here's what he said to her. He said, listen, we made you. We can kill you. And she said to him, Mr. Mayer, you didn't make me. God made me. And then she turned and walked out. 
Mm. <laughs> right? She said, if you want to get rid of my film career, fine. But that's not what makes me. I have a self. God made me. Right? See, that's the point right there. That's the real reason Paul says you'll be transformed into the likeness of whatever's most weighty to you. Louise Renier knew that God made her, not some studio executive. Who's most weighty to you? Like if you're discouraged because somebody you wanted to love you doesn't love you, that somebody's basically saying, I can make you, and you're saying, yeah, you're right. That person has more glory to you than the love of God in Jesus. If you're worried about money right now, you, you say you believe in the wisdom and the, and the power of God, right? You say you believe in the grace and the holiness of God. But in your job, you're just as nervous, you're just as driven, as ruthless maybe, borderline dishonest maybe as everybody else. You believe it, but you don't really sense the glory of God. There's part of your life where you haven't experienced God's glory breaking through. There's part of your life that isn't really quorum Deo. It's not before the face of God where you aren't walking in intimate relationship with God. Therefore, whether you make money, how you do in your career, that person who you value, that has more glory to you. That's the real weight in your life. That's what has sway. And when it goes this way, you go that way. What area really carries weight into your life? All of our failures, all of our problems, they come because something besides God is standing there saying, I made you. And you're saying, yeah, you're right. You can make me. You can break me. But if you say back, no, 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 you don't. You can't make me. I, I don't have your love, but I have Jesus' love. I don't have your power, but I have Jesus' power. Then you're starting to live in light of his glory. The raw reality is becoming more real to you than anything else. God's glory is becoming the weightiest thing in your life. Look, when you can't handle something because you're so worried or you're so resentful, it's always because you don't see the glory of the mercy of God. You don't see the glory of the wisdom of God. You may believe in it philosophically. It may be some truth you know about God way out there, but it hasn't become real to you. It's not making a difference in your life. Seeing God's glory, experiencing the reality of who he is, that's the purpose of prayer. The primary purpose of prayer is not to mail in your request. The primary purpose of prayer is to know the one who made you, to know him, to know who your Savior is. In other words, next time before you pray about your circumstances, before you pray about any of this stuff, your laundry list of things, pray your intimidation, pray your fears, pray your resentments, pray your anxiety and your depression and your despondency and pray them into the glory of God. Does that make sense? Mm. <laughs> Let me try this. Uh, we all face problems, right? Do you need a friend? Yes. Do you need a drink? Maybe. Do you need a break? Yes. Do you need a vacation? Yes. Take all the things, but that's not what you need most. It's not the main thing you need. The main thing you need is, is in this life is to gaze upon the glory of the Lord so that you're transformed into his life. That's the reason Paul says the way you know you haven't just had some kind of uh, emotional, ephemeral experience is that you've seen the glory of God, is that it has to change you. It has to make you like him. It has to give you a freedom from all that stuff around you. All of a sudden, you're, you're, you become a person who's afraid of nothing, but you're sensitive to everything, right? You become a person who's 
full of wisdom and love and holiness and humility and burning love. You become a person of passionate change and laser beam focus just like him because that's what he was. That's what happens as you gaze on his glory. And you say, how does that happen? Well, that's the last point. Um, before I get there, just a quick application that I'm thinking, um, thinking about. I just I want to ask you this. When you pray, do you say, Lord, I'm about to ask you to help me get through this. I'm about to ask you to change this person's heart, change this circumstance, move in my life, right? Um, but but I, I, really, I really need to sense your glory in this moment. To what degree are you opening up your most vulnerable moments to God and just being present with him in those moments? Or to what degree do you start out just by asking him for stuff? So that's why we pray, what do we pray for, and uh, part number three, how to pray for it. The rest of this prayer is uh, chapter 17, and it tells us, um, in a way, basically over the next few weeks, how it's, it's going to answer that. But briefly today, I just want to make this even a little more practical. Um, I'd like you to consider one thing, perhaps the biggest key of all in this whole passage. If you try to gaze on the glory of God in the abstract, it won't work. If you try to gaze on the glory of God, what do I mean by that? If you try to think of God's love, and you think about how pure he is, and you think about his holiness, and you say, God, give me, give me a sense of that, honestly, it really doesn't work that well. It'll probably be very discouraging. Have you guys, like, we've talked about that in the past as a church. It's just like, sanctification is this disconnect between what you know to be true of God and what you actually believe in your heart. And sometimes I feel like some of us are taking theology and we're trying to shove it down in our heart. Like, heart, believe that God is good. Heart, believe that God is in control right now. You try to like make yourself believe it and muscle yourself to do it, and you can't. It's exhausting. It's kind of like trying to pour the Pacific Ocean into a, a shot glass. It doesn't work. God's, God is infinite, and we have these little finite minds, and we're trying to squeeze all of God's raw reality into it. And it, does, it doesn't work, right? So how do we do that? You can go buy books on meditation and prayer techniques. Some of them are, are very Christian, some of them are not very Christian, um, but they're all somewhat useful, and they teach you how to focus your attention. But if you try to go abstractly to sense the glory of God, you'll just get overwhelmed. Have you tried that before? Yeah. So meditating on abstract truths is difficult. Why is that? It's because you weren't called to be in a relationship with abstract truths. You were called to be in a relationship with a person. Theology is not knocking on the door of your heart. Jesus is, right? There's a huge struggle in Western Christianity where faith is so intellectual and so transactional instead of being personal and relational. Meditating on abstract truths is impossible, but if you look carefully, you see it right here, the best way to understand the glory of God, if you really want to understand God's glory in a way that moves you and transforms your life, the key is, is right here in verses 1 through 5. Let me show you what I mean. Because this is, according to the gospel, that the way we actually see the glory of God, not the way Moses tried. You guys remember how Moses, Jeff talked about this last week. He said, Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And God said, I, I'm not going to show you my glory. It would kill you, okay? I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, and you can see where I just was. And that's it. You can't see my glory. It would overwhelm you. But when you get to the New Testament, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, God has shined a light into our hearts 
to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. The very thing that would have overwhelmed Moses comes through Jesus. Why? Well, let me be practical, and, and let's look at this story. Verses 1 through 5 are a story, and let me tell you how the story goes. The story starts in eternity and goes all the way through eternity. It's a story of, of, of everything, okay? First of all, we're told here, father and son, what they were doing before the world began. Do you see it? They were glorifying each other. Now, if you want a good metaphor for what marriage is, or you want a good metaphor for healthy relationships, that's it right there. When you're in a healthy relationship, a marriage, a friendship, you glorify one another, right? You honor one another. You love showing the other person what's great about them. You build them up. You take your time. And, and uh, we've got marriage counselors here right now, and they know, right? This is the kind of stuff that you do. You love one another. You adore one another. You find those unique things about one another, and you praise them. You say, I love this about you. You show them what's good. You affirm them. You glorify them. And this passage tells us the father and son were doing this from all eternity, pouring love and glory and joy into each other from all eternity. But something happened. Verse 2. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you've given him. I brought you joy on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now give me back the glory I had when we were loving each other before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ had to come to earth. The Father sent him. It was part of the plan. Why did he have to come to earth? Because on earth, down here, we decided to live for our glory. We decided to be our own saviors. And as a result, we're told our relationship with God was broken. And the only way for that relationship to be restored was for Jesus Christ to lose his relationship with the Father. When Jesus says, I've lost my glory, he's actually saying, I've lost my relationship, I've lost my place. And we see it first in the incarnation. Jesus Christ becomes mortal, he becomes vulnerable, he could get sick, he could be killed, he was killed. But on the cross, he wasn't just physically killed. On the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, that's the only time in all the gospels where Jesus prayed and didn't call God Father. Why? Because in a sense, in that moment, he wasn't his father. Jesus Christ became sin, who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. This is the place where Jesus really lost the glory all the way down. He was completely stripped of his glory so that you could be clothed and robed in his righteousness. At the cross, he was cut off from the Father. He was taking the penalty from us. In other words, like, guys, this is the gospel. Don't miss it. Jesus Christ, who had this glory, lost his glory so that we could have honor and we could be brought in. Jesus lost his glory so we could be brought into the glory. Verse 24, Father, I want those who you've given me to be with me where I am to see my glory. Listen, Jesus isn't making some self-centered proclamation. Father, show them my glory. That's not what he's saying, right? He's saying, I want them to be with me where I am. I want them to be as loved as I am with you. I want them to have the honor. I want them to be in the same place. Can you imagine that? That the place of honor Jesus Christ has, he's given to you. Only when you see Jesus Christ stripped of his glory. See, the way you're going to open to God 
is if you see the Father closing off Jesus for you. Jesus losing his glory so we could receive glory. Jesus losing his access so we could gain access. There's nothing more glorious than to see God willing to do that, willing to go through that for you. That's a glory that moves you. In other words, we must not seek the glory of God just in the abstract, but if you look into the face of Jesus, Paul says, if you look into the story of Jesus, you look and you see what he did and how he saved you by free grace by losing all he did. That begins to move you. It begins to change you. It begins to, that's where you'll see the glory. Are we tracking? That'll be the glory that'll really transform you from one degree of splendor to the next. That's where you start and that's where you go the whole time. Now let me just conclude really quickly. If you say today, man, I'm not even sure if I'm a Christian based on what you're saying right now. That's okay, fine, look. This is what Christianity is. Christianity is not saying, well, I was living like this, but now I'm going to turn over a new leaf and I'm going to live in this new moral way. Christianity is not just reforming yourself by trying harder. Christianity is transformation by gazing on the one who died for you and saved you by free grace. Christianity is not getting help and inspiration so you can live a better life. Christianity is living for a whole new purpose, for a whole new person. Therefore, the first step that's offered to you here is you have to believe. If you haven't believed, that's okay. Keep coming, keep showing up, keep hanging out with community, keep diving into the scripture. You will see God's glory. I believe that. For those of us who do believe, though, and I want to talk to New City today. If you've asked Jesus Christ in objectively, I want to ask you, are you asking him in subjectively? Do you take the time? Do you go after him? Do you love him? Do you open yourself up in each moment to the God who is there? Are you more intimate with God than you were yesterday, than you were a year ago? Are you asking him to show you his glory more and more in the regular everyday stuff of life? Are you seeing his glory more and more in the face of Jesus Christ? Are you being transformed more and more into his image? I'll close with this. In Luke 3.21, at Jesus' baptism, you guys know the famous story. Jesus is, is baptized, and in that moment, the Father speaks down from heaven and says, this is, this is my son who I love. I'm well pleased with him. And he saw the Holy Spirit descending on him. And I always thought that was in response to baptism. But if you look at it, look at Luke 3.21. It says, while he was still praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. And the voice said, you're my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That was a response to Jesus praying. He was praying. That's the primordial prayer. He's saying, open to me and heaven open. That's the guts of what prayer is. Don't just mail it in. Don't settle for a distant deity when you can have heaven open up for you, when you can have a Father's love spoken over you. Say, Father, show me your glory that I may glorify you. Let's pray. Father, prayer opens heaven. Prayer hears the voice of the finished work of Christ. He's completed the work you gave him to do on the cross. He said, it is finished, it's completed. The more we gaze on Jesus, not just as an example, Lord, but as our Savior, the more we gaze on you, not in the abstract, Father, but, but on you sending your Son, on you losing 
your son so you can gain us as your children, the more we see that, the more we begin to see glory. Lord, you're standing at the door of each of our hearts knocking right now. And I pray that people all over this building would open their hearts to you in new ways. Many of us in this room desire closer walks with you. Many of us want to know you more, but we get so busy with life. We forget to peer through life and find you. Show us your glory. Save us from a transactional relationship with a distant deity. Draw near to us. Help us to see how near to us you actually are. And help us to experience your raw reality and your weightiness in moments like this. As we take communion over the next few moments, Father, I pray you would remind us that you loved us so much you sent your son to live a perfect life in our place, to die a death we should have died so that we could be brought near. He was dishonored so we could be honored. Help us to remember the gospel and proclaim it to our hearts today over communion. If, if there's people in this place, Father, right now that need to draw closer to you, maybe it's somebody who's never believed the gospel. I pray you would give them the courage to step forward, get prayed for down here with our prayer team. Or maybe there's people in this place that just need to be reminded of the gospel again. They're going through life situations. They're hurting. They're struggling right now. And yes, they need those felt needs met. They need you. But more than anything, God, they need to see you and your glory in their life. Draw near to us as a church, God. And help us not only to see your glory more, but to be transformed to image bearers more and more, God to people who are bearing your glory, who are moving out throughout this city and showing people what you're like through our life together, through the way we love one another and serve and give. Transform us today more and more into the image of your son, all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.